Hello and welcome. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News at MTV and your host here at The Stakes, a political-ish podcast where even though the World Series is over, we are all, politically speaking, still biting our fingernails at the bottom of the ninth, tenth. That is a baseball joke written for me by my producers, one of whom lives in Chicago, and the other one's Canadian, which is basically the same thing. Congrats, y'all. But before the world ends next week, we have a lovely show for you. Politics writer Jamie Fuller speaks to two North Carolina residents on HB2 and the conservative takeover of that state. Uh, It's a situation where you don't know whenever you go to a public facility who is going to say something or do something to you. Then, Deputy Politics Editor Julianne Ross sits down with author Emily Witt to discuss her book, Future Sex. You know, I think the future will be honing certain rituals and ethical codes so that this kind of sexuality where you're independent in the world and meeting people will be, you know, as comfortable and will make us as happy as the traditional monogamous relationship is said to do. And finally, MTV Founders editor Julie Zeilinger speaks about her own history covering Planned Parenthood, and we hear from young women about what the century-old health network means to them now. Hi there, I'm a high school senior from Austin, Texas, and when I was 17, so about a year ago, exactly actually, I um, went into Planned Parenthood for the first time with my mom after a sexual assault when I realized that I was pregnant. But first, the Dakota Access Pipeline protest is still going strong in Cannonball, North Dakota. Thousands of people are camping out to protest the construction of the Thousand Mile Pipeline that may threaten water supplies on Native American sacred land. Last week, there was a clash between protesters and authorities that erupted in mace, tasers, rubber bullets, and over 100 arrests. For an update on what's going on at the protest, Marcus Ellsworth called Aaron Wise. She's the media coordinator for the Sacred Stone Camp in North Dakota and the International Indigenous Youth Council at Standing Rock. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm fantastic. This week has been, this past couple of weeks have been particularly intense because there has been violence that has erupted with, between law enforcement and protesters, um, especially young people who are out there. Um, in fact, I saw that you had posted on your Twitter and Instagram that your sister was injured by police officers. Yeah, that's correct. Um, on the 22nd, uh, my sister's wrist was broken by police while she was trying to protect a nine-year-old boy that had gotten separated from his grandparents and his aunt. And uh, this past a weekend on the 27th, my sister had her wrist um I don't know that it, I would say rebroken, but um, the same police officer that broke it the first time grabbed her wrist and twisted it again. Um, in addition to um, her being maced five times with um, some other members of our youth council, they were all maced five times. Um, many of them were hit with beanbag shotguns. All of them were hit with tear gas canisters. My own little brother actually had one shot right in his face. They also were there when there were percussion grenades and. Um, 
LRADs, the the long range audio being used on them. So all of the all of the youth council were there on the front lines when those were being used. This aggressive response from law enforcement is it in response to any sort of violence or aggression from the protesters? Uh, no, uh, we established this camp in April as a prayerful, peaceful camp. Everyone that comes here um, has acknowledged that they surrender their right to bear arms and also surrender their right to bring any aggression or um, violence into the camps. We um, have respected our elders' request to maintain a peaceful and prayerful place for everyone to come and uh, work on prayer to uh, defeat this pipeline. And um, a lot of, you know, like as things have escalated, there have been an exchange of words. There has, you know, understandably been swearing, even on my part, to be honest, um, at some of the law enforcement that are out there. But it's mostly just in reaction to what's being happened. You see, you know, for example, me, you know, seeing my sister get maced and then have her wrist broken. And, you know, as a big sister going out there, you know, asking like, WTF, you know, what are you doing to us? We're people, we're human beings. The the most I've seen is, you know, an exchange of words um, that maybe weren't constructive, but also we do have police that are continually swearing at us, um, continually beating us down and brutalizing us in, you know, the strangest and like rawest ways. Oh, and and it's, I only say strange because we're, we're fighting for water. You know, we're not taking property we're not stealing people. We're we're simply fighting for the right to clean water. And it's we're fighting for the right to clean water for those officers as well. All of this has to be extremely emotionally taxing, being out there every day and, like you said, trying to maintain your composure and the higher ground when you're faced with that. How are folks keeping the morale up? How are y'all taking care of each other out there? Um, I know for the Youth Council... Uh, this past Halloween, well, a couple days before Halloween, actually, we had a, a young girl from the Ocheti Shikoan camp school come and ask us to help her have a Halloween for the youth. All of us, you know, had forgotten that it was going to be Halloween. And so we actually used some of the funds that were donated to us. And we went and bought Halloween costumes for the kids at the school, bought a bunch of candy, face paint, um, masks. Um, butterfly wings, things of that nature. And we actually had a huge dance party at our youth council camp and hung out with the kids um, all afternoon. And, you know, I mean, there's planes and helicopters circling overhead constantly. It's kind of become white noise at this point. But, you know, to have all these kids on the ground listening to Beyonce in the middle of, you know, teepees and like dancing, a lot of it, a lot of it, to be honest, is, you know, prayer and singing and dancing when we're not, you know, praying or when we're not in ceremony together, I mean, you can almost always catch us singing and dancing. That's one thing that we really enjoy doing. And um, we spend a lot of time with our elders. And I mean, Native people love to laugh. We love to joke. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about us as a group is that we can um, experience these terrible things. You know, we've already experienced the genocide that no one talks about. And we've already experienced historical trauma via boarding schools and uh, Indian Removal Acts and Manifest Destiny, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. And yet we are able to make jokes, you know, with each other about the things that have been the hardest parts of our history and, uh, you know, find ways to sing songs about it and, and dance in spite of everything. And uh, so, yeah, maintaining morale. 
lots of singing, lots of dancing, definitely hoping that, you know, Beyonce shows up just specifically to see the youth council so we can show her that we can all dance to formation. Thank you very much, Erin. Yeah, don't forget about us. That was our poet-in-residence and politics writer, Marcus Ellsworth, speaking with Aaron Wise, media coordinator for the Sacred Stone Camp in North Dakota and the International Indigenous Youth Council. You can go to sacredstonecamp.org to learn more. As you must have heard by now, this year, North Carolina passed a law we came to know as HB2. The fallout from this legislation has cost the state dearly in lost business from canceled concerts, sporting events, and other planned ventures. Our politics reporter Jamie Fuller went down to North Carolina in the run-up to the election to update us on the LGBTQ community's fight for their rights. She was put in touch with Madeline Goss, who's an outspoken activist against HB2. Hi, Maddie. Hi. Hey, Jamie. Uh, Could you first describe what HB2 is? HB2 is a piece of legislation that was passed over the summer in North Carolina um, that requires that all all trans people use the restroom uh, that uh, matches their their birth sex, uh, regardless of their gender identity or expression. It also goes in and limits um, cities and municipalities' ability to pass non-discrimination ordinances, which basically takes away our ability to create safe spaces here in North Carolina. And you've been speaking out against this law since the beginning, including when you went to go speak in front of a state house panel and you gave very emotional testimony. And you grew up in Hickory, North Carolina, correct? I did. In your testimony, you mentioned a very personal story about an awful experience that you personally had in a men's room growing up. Um, Yeah, when I was younger and first coming out, um, I found myself in a situation where someone took my being in the men's room as an invitation and took advantage of me uh, in in a sexual way. Uh, And um, as you can imagine, this was a horrible experience and something we don't want anybody to have to go through. And you live in Raleigh right now, which um, is in most of the cities in North Carolina have been far more welcoming and pushing back against this law than some rural places. And has your life changed on a day-to-day basis uh, since you began fighting against this law every day? You know, I think that um, one of the unfortunate side effects of HB2 is it has really created a climate of fear. Uh, it's a situation where you don't know whenever you go to a public facility who is going to say something or do something to you if they decide that, you know, your gender identity or expression doesn't match what they think should, go, you know, should match somebody who goes into that specific facility. This this puts you in, a, in an awkward position because then you have to decide, you know, am I going to obey the law and use the restroom that matches my my um, birth certificate, or am I going to defy the law and use the restroom that matches my gender identity? And, you know, for some people, you know, they pass well enough that they, they can get away with it, and some people, they have a lot more trouble. But the point is, is this has created a really fearful situation and a dangerous one for people like myself. Mm-hmm. And have you spoken one-on-one with any politicians who uh, supported the bill? I have. 
Um, I've spoken with several politicians uh, who who supported the bill, and you know they um, they all kind of follow a party line. You know, it's it's unfortunate that a, a bill like this has been used as a wedge issue during a you know election year politics. And when when you're speaking one on one with these politicians, how how does how do they treat you versus what they're saying publicly? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, when you get somebody face-to-face, it's really hard for them to say bad things to you. Um, people are generally, you know, people are generally nice uh, here in North Carolina. And, and But, um, you know, you, uh, you, their reactions really run the gamut. Some of them are embarrassed by the vote that they cast. Some of them are following the party line. And, um, you know, some of them, especially in, like, rural eastern North Carolina, don't really see the problem. Um, and it's it's been a real difficult road to to convince them uh, of the error of their ways. And then more broadly, there's the Supreme Court case now too. Yeah, that's actually um, that's actually given us a lot of hope. Uh, and could you please explain for our listeners too just what the Supreme Court case on this issue is? Well, the Supreme Court case really comes down to how HB two affects schools. Because it's in public facilities and government offices, it also counts for public schools. And um, I believe it's, it's either Title IX or Title VII, I can never remember which, prohibits uh, discrimination based on sex. And in this case, you know, we're counting gender and gender identity under that discrimination. So the, the case is um, by pre- requiring trans people to use a restroom that doesn't match their gender identity, you're discriminating against them based on their sex. Next Tuesday kind of feels like a deadline where politics will end at that point and uh, something else will happen. Your fight against this law, uh, all activists fight against this law, doesn't end after the election. And what do you think is the next big step that needs to happen or that you hope happens after November 8th? Well, um, I am hopeful. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have some hope. Um, we are, we're seeing, um, you know, Republicans are turning away from HB2 in droves. Um, we're seeing a, a huge backlash against Governor McCrory. And um, what we're hoping to see is a big change in our General Assembly so that with the Democratic governor and a General Assembly that's not veto-proof, um, hopefully we'll be able to actually get something done and get it repealed. That was Jamie Fuller and Madeline Goss. To give us an insider's perspective, Jamie also spoke with the only out member of the North Carolina General Assembly. I'm Chris Scro, S as in Sam, G as in Gary, R as in Roger, O as in Orange. I'm the Executive Director of Equality North Carolina, and I am a member of the North Carolina General Assembly in the House. And have you lived in North Carolina your entire life? No, I've been here for about 10 years. I moved here with my husband from Washington, D.C. in late 2007. And what were your first impressions when you first came to North Carolina about what the climate was like? Well, you know, I moved down here to work on Senator Kay Hagan's race. That was a race that we won in the same year that President Obama won the state. Um, North Carolina proved itself to be a progressive beacon that year. I believe it is still a progressive beacon. Unfortunately, through redistricting and the 2010 election, we have ended up with a radically conservative uh, governor and General Assembly who are not at all reflective of the warm and welcoming people, whether it's in rural or urban parts of the state that I've gotten to know uh, in my time here. And 
How long have you been affiliated with Equality North Carolina? I've been the executive director for about three and a half years at this point. So you've been running it during this entire uh, conservative kind of the conservative takeover for the first time since Reconstruction, basically. Right. Yeah. I've I've been here for most of the time since uh, this this General Assembly takeover by radical Republicans that hopefully is going to uh, break this year in 2016. And when you first started as executive director, what did you feel like your main task was, the, the thing that you wanted to make happen during your tenure? Well... At the state level, we've always actually been focused on winning non-discrimination protections. Uh, so from even though that was pre-marriage equality still at that point, we knew that through the courts we were likely to have marriage equality within a year or so. It happened a little sooner than we all thought even with that timeline. But so we've always thought, you know, it's it. we were setting up a society where people could get married on a Friday and fired on a Monday still for being gay or transgender and I frankly believe to the extent that there is any silver lining that comes out of House Bill 2, it's the fact that a lot of North Carolinians now front and center understand why we need those protections. And then for you specifically, you have been fighting for these issues for a long time. And then last spring, <clears throat> you end up in the legislative body that has been that decided HB2. Uh, and I wonder if you could explain how that came about. Sure. Um, it has it has certainly been a unique year for me and for a lot of members of the community. After HB2, um, uh, I was appointed to the legislature. Uh, unfortunately, my predecessor passed away while he was in office, uh, and my local Democratic Party selected me, largely because they saw that there was no, to that point, LGBT LGBT representation in the North Carolina General Assembly to go represent my part of North Carolina in Greensboro for the remainder of that session because they understood that it was that important over this debate to have somebody who was actually part of the affected community. Uh, it is different to be on the outside advocating in than to be on the inside. Um, I'll be honest that there were a lot of great relationships that I was able to make and uh, a lot of good conversations on both sides of the aisle. There's also a lot of pomp and circumstance that's completely unnecessary in government that I hope to come back to government at some point in the future uh, so that I can fight. You know, I, I recognize that we all want to be polite to each other. Uh, we want to have our um, kind of cordial session and at the same time, when you're attacking my community directly with your policy, it's not enough that you can come up to me and recognize me as a general, uh, as a member of the General Assembly. You also have to understand that you are uh, you're dealing with somebody who represents a far greater constituency. Uh, I've had a lot of emotions as I've been in the legislature. It's been rewarding. Um, it's been exhilarating. It's been frustrating and maddening to be with people who oppress our community every single day. Um, all in all, I'm glad that I spent this time here. I'm glad that I had an opportunity to, for the first time, maybe have conversations with people who had not necessarily sat down with somebody to talk about the real life implications of a bill like House Bill 2. My biggest takeaway, though, is that there has got to always be at least one, if not many, <laughs> out LGBT folks in uh, all levels of elected government, but especially for me in the North Carolina General Assembly. So I'm committed to that being my mission forward. And is there are, are there any openly gay candidates running for the legislature right now? There is. Uh, Jane Campbell, who's running in Mecklenburg County and is one of our target races. It is a dead even race at this point. 
Uh, she is an out lesbian veteran candidate. She entered the race because of House Bill 2. She had to, actually had to petition her way onto the ballot after the, the passage of House Bill 2 made her want to run. She has a very good shot at winning, and she would be an amazing voice for the LGBT community. That was Chris Groh. He's the executive director of Equality North Carolina and a member of the North Carolina General Assembly. Our society teaches us that love is a one-track path to marriage, but journalist and author Emily Witt thinks it's a lot more complicated than that. In her new book, Future Sex, she explores how the internet has led to a growth in dating apps, polyamory, and an alternative future outside of monogamy. Emily sat down with Deputy News Editor Julianne Ross to discuss her book. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for joining us in our New York City studio. Hi, nice to be here. Um, So let's just start with the basics. What is Future Sex? And you can talk about both the book and maybe the act. Um, So Future Sex is a book that I wrote, and the future part was partially personal, what to do with my own future. When I turned 30 and I wasn't anywhere close to being married as I'd expected, and I knew there were all these possibilities, um for sexual freedom that I'd never considered before because I thought of myself as a certain kind of person. So it was partially my personal future and then partially considering that many of these new, well, many of these communities and technology and changes in demographics where people were getting married later or not at all um, were futuristic in the sense that they represented a break from recent history They involved new technology. They involved new language. So it was also a way of exploring where sexuality and the family and the structures of our relationship might go in the next few decades. Yeah, and it's super personal. You know, you're mixing your memoir with all these journalistic observations, and, you know, you're going to all of these different places. You have your experience at Burning Man and your experience with polyamory, and throughout it all— you, the narrator in this book, like you're very open-minded, but it doesn't seem like you're always like super enthusiastic about trying these new things. Like I'm thinking of the um, the oming, which is the orgasmic meditation. It's just an example that's coming to mind. Can you speak to like what purpose that perspective sort of serves in the book and what that, you know, openness with still some hesitation brought to the the story you wanted to tell? The oming is a good example for people who don't know that is a practice where two people sit down, the woman takes off her pants, um, her partner strokes her clitoris for 15 minutes, and it's supposed to be, a, it's, it's obviously a sexual practice, but it's not supposed to culminate, it's not foreplay, it's not supposed to culminate in any kind of intercourse, it's supposed to be able to happen between friends. Yeah, when I first heard about this, I went in, and I think I needed um, journalism as an alibi for me to get there in the first place. So it wasn't necessarily intentional that I was kind of keeping this distance. It was much more just that I was kind of shy. Um, this community of people really was really welcoming, but also very, um, I don't know, 
little outside my comfort zone in terms of their public discussion of their sexuality. And and so I went in first kind of just insisting to everybody that I was a reporter all the time and and insisting to myself that that was why I was there. And then after I tried the practice a few times and listened and went through some of their workshops and stuff, and then some months passed, I realized that this— this thing that I thought of as kind of a strange thing that I was looking at as a journalist actually helped me address some personal questions about, I don't know, panic and anxiety I had around sexual feelings or, or you know, I never thought of myself as a repressed person because I'd grown up in a very liberal environment, but it turned out that I was in some ways disconnected from the feelings in my body and I felt uncomfortable talking about my sexuality sometimes and naming my desires was not a practice I had I don't know. It was not something I did. So you have a chapter on polyamory, um, and I was wondering if you could talk about the process of meeting Elizabeth and Wes, who are the the main couple in that group, and why you found their particular story to be interesting. Sure. Um, so I met Elizabeth and Wes kind of by accident. A friend knew I was working on this book, and she said, oh, you have to meet my polyamorist friends. Um, and for people who don't know what that means exactly, it means Polyamory is the belief that you can have more than one partner at the same time, that you can be really in love with more than one person. It's not just having an open relationship. It means that you think you can carry on more than one committed relationship. So Elizabeth and Wes, I met by accident. Um, You know, I met Elizabeth first. Um, She was young at the time. She was in her early 20s. She was working at Google um, she'd gone, she was very, a very professionally successful person. And it was so interesting to me because she didn't define herself as rebellious in any way. And yet she'd undertaken this great experiment with her life, which was, she was at the time that I met her in a relationship with two men who were also best friends with each other. Um, and I guess I had grown up with this idea of the 70s and of new communalism and that these kind of experiments always failed and resulted in jealousy and broken hearts and that they tended to be kind of sexist. And um, and yet here were these very poised, articulate, um, you know, they really had their act together, <laughs> um, young people that really, you know, they knew that they were going to face jealousy and some degree of emotional squalor, and yet they believed, you know, they wanted to live a more experimental life. They wanted more honesty in their relationships, so they were never going to be the kind of person that defined what they did as cheating. They didn't want to lie, you know. They wanted to code what they were doing into language and give it intention in that way. To me, it was amazing to see a group of young people that still believed there were sort of that we hadn't arrived at any kind of end point in our sexual freedom, that despite the fact that we had all this porn and all this and Tinder and stuff, that there were still there was still kind of a frontier of experimentation. Um and and futurism in how we organized our relationships. And that was inspiring to me. So looking at, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing in the media over online dating and, you know, what is this doing? What is hookup culture doing to the next generation? Um, and this one line really resonated with me. These articles had a wistful tone, and even the ones 
that fretted over hookup culture believed in the power of a GPS-equipped mobile device to sexually liberate women, as if the technology would free us from all the fears and superstitions. And so I was wondering if you could speak to how some of these sexual futures, for lack of a, a better term, could or could not change the expectations that women place on themselves. That quote is funny. So when I first started writing about Tinder, I wrote an article about Tinder in 2013 when it was still new for GQ magazine. And um, and it was so funny because every time I went out and interviewed people, they asked me what it was supposed to be for. And I think people really need to have a story that they're telling themselves. So in the case of Tinder at that point, people wanted to believe it was a hookup app even though it didn't necessarily say that mm-hmm. anywhere in the technology or, you know, and the founders were constantly denying that that was what it was. And people just feel more comfortable when they feel like their life is following a story that there's a lot of consensus around and everybody's agreed as kind of normal and they can tell their parents and their parents will understand or or their friends. So a lot of that, in you know, one thing I've been saying is that there isn't a lot of there isn't much new with sexual practice, and the future of sexuality. Some things will be different, but you know, there's not much innovation that you can really do with sex that hasn't yeah. been done before. <laughs> um, but there is different stories, different language, um, you know, different ways of feeling that your life is not outside of the culture somehow. So, for example, for me, you know, I'd always assumed I would get married. Um, Words like polyamory or non-monogamy or, you know, the new new language we have around gender. This new language helps us think of alternative futures and helps us feel like our life isn't outside of a a mainstream. As long as there's a story you can attach to it that other people will understand and language that you can use that other people will understand, you feel like you're not out there on your own in in some kind of sexual, isolated sexual subculture. I just, I don't know, I hadn't I hadn't been taught to frame my sexuality in terms of sex. (laughs) Instead, it was in terms of romance or in terms of yeah, intellectual desires or, you know, all this stuff. And I I kind of treated sex as a secondary question or as a kind of cheap thing or as a kind of, um, yeah, just I didn't give it the value that once I focused on that part of my life and began sort of admitting to myself what I liked and, you know, watching porn and naming what actually turned me on, it really changed the way I interacted with people in my dating life and um, for the better. I'm of an age where, like, all my friends are starting to get engaged. Okay. Um, And it was interesting, and you get to this too, I feel like throughout most of your life, you know, you have these barometers or there are these achievements that, like, mark where you are in life. You know, you graduate high school, you go to a good college, you graduate college, you get your job. Um, And it's interesting because marriage is changing so much, you know, it's becoming more equitable. It's like you talk about, like, it's no longer like assume that a woman will take a man's name and that, you know, will sort of be subsumed into his life. Um, With that changing definition of marriage, should that still be this marker of achievement? For me, no. No. Um, And that's one of the things I realized when I was writing the book is that, 
you know, I had very much defined my life according to these metrics of success, like going to a good college and getting good grades. And so marriage was a milestone I thought I would just kind of hit. Um, and and I wanted it. Um, and then now, to me, I just I don't see, you know, I'm not saying that you don't really fall in love with certain people in your life and want to have long-term commitments with them. But marriage, I don't know. For me, the future is going to be a discussion about how to raise children and organize our society and take care of each other and have safe sexual relationships outside of marriage. I I think the historical impetus for it isn't there anymore. It's just no longer something that I don't know. It feels like it's on the wrong side of history, I think, for a lot of people. (laughs) To go back to the futurism idea, you know, there's a real machine bias in what we think of as futuristic. And these these conversations about how to reinvent the family outside of marriage, that is a futuristic conversation. Our reproductive technologies are changing very quickly. Our ideas of gender are changing really quickly, Um, you know. And government and business are going to have to catch up in a way with these new kinds of communities and new new families. And these are sexual decisions. They're kind of societal nodes that are organized around the way people have sex. What is the future of sex? Um, I think it's going to be less monogamous. You know, I think the future will be honing certain rituals and ethical codes so that this kind of sexuality where you're independent in the world and meeting people will be, you know, as comfortable and will make us as happy as the traditional monogamous relationship is said to do. Sounds like a good future to look forward to. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Really loved the book. (laughs) Thanks. That was Emily Witt, author of Future Sex, speaking with deputy editor of News and Politics, Julianne Ross. Future Sex is available wherever fine books are sold, and Emily even read an audiobook version for you. Check it out. Finally. In observance of the 100th anniversary of Planned Parenthood, we'd like to end today with a piece on what the organization means to young women today. Here's MTV Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger. Planned Parenthood has faced its fair share of opposition in its 100 years of existence. But perhaps no year in its history was worse than 2015, when Planned Parenthood faced clinic shootings and political opposition, like a House Oversight Committee that investigated defunding the organization altogether. And yet, Planned Parenthood is, and always has been, a crucial resource for millions of Americans, and especially young women, who ironically often get the worst rap for caring about their reproductive rights. But Planned Parenthood is beloved by millions of young people across the country. While many equate the organization with its abortion services, that's not the whole story. It teaches 1.6 million students sex education every year, many through teen council members who travel school to school teaching peer education programs. Every year, Planned Parenthood services prevent an estimated 516,000 unintended pregnancies, and they perform about 400,000 pap tests, half a million breast exams, and 4.5 million STI-related tests. 
I'm a reporter who has covered the attacks Planned Parenthood faced last year, as well as sex education and reproductive rights more generally. I've talked to a transgender survivor of rape who received an abortion from Planned Parenthood. I've talked to a gay man who said he didn't feel comfortable disclosing his sexuality to any other healthcare providers. And I've talked to dozens of teen girls who have received life-altering sex education and access to contraception thanks to the organization. But I have always been less compelled by the quantity of people Planned Parenthood helps than the quality of the experiences those vast number of people have. As the editor of MTV Founders and a young feminist myself, I've especially been astonished by the stories I've heard from teen girls about how they've benefited from Planned Parenthood. So I reached out to young women, all under 21, who are pushing back on the stereotype that millennials are complacent about their reproductive rights. First up, Ali Nugent shares her experience being pro-choice and anti-choice communities. Growing up, I remember my mom showing me a picture of a younger version of herself on the cover of the paper. She was marching on Washington for reproductive rights and pro-choice legislation. At the time, I cared more about her cool jean jacket than the ideology she was instilling in me. Fast forward past many musically driven years to summer 2016, Warped Tour is traveling the country with Rock for Life, a pro-life organization. They were spreading some incredibly harmful misinformation about reproductive rights to a very malleable audience that I was a part of not long ago. Remembering what my mother stood for, I jumped to action. By the next morning, I crafted together a 12-page zine combating everything Rock for Life had been preaching for the past weeks, paired with as many resources as I could gather. At my local Warped Tour date, I was lucky enough to have my own tent to build a safe space to give out over a thousand of these zines and talk about any pro-choice questions the young showgoers might have. Post-Warped Tour, I volunteer at my local Planned Parenthood as much as possible, doing anything from voter registration to making sure patrons feel safe leaving the building. Where I've grown up, there isn't a great deal of pro-choice information at hand. Trust me, we're no Texas, but it's not a lot better. I've had no formal sexual or reproductive rights education in school other than abstinence. Even in college, I've had papers I've written about pro-choice legislation thrown out because if I don't need an abortion, it shouldn't matter to me. I don't want to be a person who only cares about things that directly affect me. And I don't want to live in a world where somebody's body becomes a political prop. Hi there, I'm a high school senior from Austin, Texas, and when I was 17, so about a year ago, exactly actually, I um, went into Planned Parenthood for the first time with my mom after a sexual assault when I realized that I was pregnant. I had not known I was sexually assaulted, but was told afterwards by groups of people that something had happened because I was um, blacked out. I really appreciated the care that they gave me in Planned Parenthood and not even just physical care but also mental health care that they seemed to genuinely care about my situation and genuinely want to hear what I had to say and because of Texas laws I had to do a mandated anti-abortion consultation and I also had to get an invasive vaginal screening vaginal ultrasound and um had to was forced to listen to the heartbeat of this fetus, which was really horrendous, but the women in Planned Parenthood did as much as they legally could to make my life feel, it not feel like it was a burden on them, not even a burden on them, but not feel like I was the only person who had gone through this. And I had always been a reproductive justice advocate, but I had never realized just the emotional stress that it would take to be a Planned Parenthood worker with how much how much criticism they get and how really dense a lot of the stories are. And the reason that I'm now a Planned Parenthood volunteer and a volunteer for NARAL Pro-Choice Texas 
is that I am so appreciative of the care that they gave me and the time that they gave me and that there was no detail that was not thought about that I they had my best intention in mind even if Texas laws really made it made me feel like I um was I was the perpetrator and not the victim um it's it's hard to get an abortion at 17. It's hard to get an abortion period, but it was the best choice for me. And it was a choice that I don't regret. And I think that's a very large part of that can be attributed to the care I got while I was at Planned Parenthood. My name is Taylor Vidmar. I am 18 years old. I'm from Illinois and a student at Ridgeland Community College. So early this school year, Planned Parenthood coincidentally came to my campus at the same time my younger sister was going through her first sex ed course at school. She's in eighth grade and her school uses an abstinence-only program taught by a local pregnancy center, which is very much against birth control, premarital sex, and abortion. It's the same program I sat through years ago and one that doesn't teach much about sex at all. They just tell the students that abstinence is the only birth control that works. So I remember this program when Planned Parenthood visited and asked them for sex ed literature. I used it to talk to my sister about all the different types of available birth control. The information was very helpful. The pamphlets listed about a dozen or so different forms of birth control, as well as the pros and cons of each method. I'm beyond grateful for these resources and that I was able to help educate my sister about birth control. It's imperative that young women specifically have a safe and supportive space they can turn to in terms of sex education and reproductive rights because I know the program my sister and I went through really perpetuated the stigma of female sexuality. My name is Gabby Catalano. I am 20 years old. I am from San Diego, California, and I am a junior at Arizona State University. Last December, I went to Planned Parenthood to refill my birth control. This was my first time ever going to Planned Parenthood, and I was a little skeptical to go because the Planned Parenthood actually nearest to me, about 10 minutes away, shut down. And this made me feel just a little skeptical and just kind of uncomfortable going. And I also heard that there were a lot of protesters at the one that was about 30 minutes away from my home. But I decided to go anyways, so I walk in and I just notice how inviting and how warm the atmosphere is. I felt really comfortable being at Planned Parenthood. After my visit, um, the nurse actually gave me a brochure about all of the services that Planned Parenthood offers, um, from birth control methods, um, women's health, the reproductive system, safe sex, and contraceptive methods. I gained so much information after I went to Planned Parenthood, and I've actually gone multiple times um, to gain more information on uh, other birth control methods other than the pill. Um, I'm Sarania, <coughs> Sarania Johnson, and I'm a member of the Teen Council, um, specifically the Get Real Teen Council in Massachusetts, and um, I'm part of the Get Real Teen Council as a group which... Um, is a peer education group um, that centers on sexual health. The way that men in my school speak about sex and the way that women speak speak about sex um, and the way that they have been taught sex ed and like 
pretty much is sex ed is really neglected like both genders all genders because i'm talking about like non-binary female male and for people to say that teens don't want that information is just not truthful at all because when i go into classrooms um because i've taught all female classes and i've taught all male classes so i've seen the and i've taught mix the mixture of those classes um and i've seen the whole spectrum so when i go into like let's say like an all male classroom um and i teach like a consent lesson the the men in the classroom are like i don't care about this no they're like oh i want to know more about a healthy relationship I, they want to talk about what they think a healthy relationship entails and they want to talk about their feelings they talk about how they want to be validated by a partner they want to they, they want respect they want this they want that and i feel like they were so eager to like be a part of that lesson because they've never like got a platform to talk about this ever before in their life and they're like wow like i have these feelings i have these things that i want in a relationship but i've never actually said them out loud like i've never actually realized that i want respect and i want i want trust from my partner i've never really thought about that out in the open and i've never actually thought about what my partner wants in a relationship either i just thought we were just in high school and you're mine and i'm yours and that's it when i think about how people can support this movement of empowering youth to take control of their sexual health and having and making healthy choices i think that in any way that you can support a youth that you know or a school or a program that you should do when we when we went when i went to the teen council summit and we rallied at the capitol hill and we talked to our legislators the one thing that i wish that all legislators would do would just like listen would just listen to the to youth and what they want because i see that a lot of adults love to speak for youth and they speak for youth all day and that's great that um but they never give a platform for youth to actually speak or they never listen to what the youth want and i think that if you could just if adults could just listen that would be like the number the first thing that they could do That was Julie Zeilinger. I'm Holly Anderson, and those were the stakes. We're back at you early again next week. Tune in Monday night for one final Election Eve edition of Stakes After Dark, or SAD, before the great sadness comes. Until then, stay safe and take care of each other out there. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.